What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. This week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and this week our show features Smarty Pants, Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State, the unflappable Jessica Luther, independent journalist, weightlifter, and baker in Austin, Texas, and the fierce Shireen Ahmed, freelancer, activist, and the world's most snuggliest person in Toronto, Canada. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly to become an official patron of the podcast, and in exchange, you get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly newsletter, and an opportunity to record on the burn pile. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast. We are so grateful for your support and happy that our flamethrowing family is growing. On this week's show, surprise, surprise, we're going to talk the Women's World Cup <laughs> 2019. <laughs> Shocking. We also interviewed Professor Jen Doyle. She's going to talk to us about the VAR and what the politics are of a lot of men and a lot of women referees' heads, headsets. But before all that, I want to ask my co-hosts what they're paying attention to, if anything, besides the Women's World Cup. <laughs> There's and other wanna, things happening. Oh, I want to start by asking Jessica, when I read the news, that maybe Serena Williams will pair up with Andy Murray for Wimbledon. Oh my Did you gosh. catch that? Well, not until you said anything, because I have been in a Women's World Cup <laughs> cave. Like, when I read, I know I talk about it all the time, but I really do love Lindsay's, when she does the nine, she does Tennis Tuesdays. And when I was reading on Tuesday, she had a line in there that Wimbledon was starting in five days. And I texted her in all caps, Wimbledon starting in five days? Like, that's how I, y'all know, I love tennis so much. Oh, and yeah. the fact that it was completely off my radar is just such a good indication of where my brain has been as far as Women's World Cup and, and the focus on that. But yeah, so today I, I saw that both Andy Murray and Serena and Serena's coach have put out the idea that maybe they would play mixed doubles, which is just like, don't tease, man. <laughs> like, don't tease if you're not going to come through for this. Like, I, I feel like I'll cry. Like, I love them both so much. It's really fun that he is back at all, that he's able to play. He had a really, he had hip surgery, I think maybe five months ago. You know, he talked when he was in Australia, we talked about this, that he, um, will likely retire very soon. And he's been one of my favorite players for a long time. He's, you know, he's the feminist of the men that play tennis professionally. And I would just, that would just be really, really amazing and lovely to see the two of them on the court together, especially at this point in their careers. That would just be fun. (laughs) Shireen, have you been able to, how are you functioning? 
Well, I'm just, I'm getting distracted by AFCON, like the Cup of Nations, but for not all the glorious reasons that I would normally like. I'm also tremendously enjoying Jessica being completely consumed by women's football. I really love this. <laughs> I, and I've, I've, I've like, I really, really love it. But Andy Murray and Serena Williams is like a gift from the universe. Very soon following Megan Rapinoe's gifts up to the universe. So oh it's God. like, what is that noise? it's just like beautiful continuation of things that we deserve. And Andy Murray and Serena Williams is like, what better, what better thing to happen other than burn it all down in the world of sports than Andy Murray. And Serena Williams, like, hey, which I'm not even like a tennis person, but I will watch that. I will watch that. I will, I will so watch that. Yeah, it'll be like the and... biggest audience for mixed doubles ever, ever. I want to say. <laughs> yeah, which would be sure. awesome. Yeah. Which would be awesome it because would. I've long believed in instituting a mixed category for, you know, football, soccer. Yeah. So, and it's you so know, fun. Would, doubles is so fun. It is so and fun. And people just don't also, get access like, to it. like, I really, I really appreciate Serena's, like, openness to this because she's so positive like with Federer she's like you know buddy buddy and then her being open to play with Andy Murray like the way she's just like I'm available like I'm like you're Serena Williams like you're just so casual about how (laughs) great you are like you know what I mean like it's just I would love to see Andy Murray bow to her on the court that's what I want to see happen but we never know Amira how you doing good you know I'm mostly not at all caring about anything else but I also wanted to take a second to give a shout out to Coco Goff while we're talking about Wimbledon if you don't know her name write it down somebody to definitely keep your eye on she's a teenage phenom a black girl from Florida and at 15 she just became the youngest person to qualify for Wimbledon so there's been other teenagers who've qualified via direct entry but she qualified on the court by winning one of the preliminary draws, 6-1-6-1, a victory that she did in under an hour. She's absolutely phenomenal to phenomenal to watch um and so i wanted to put everybody on her radar uh coco goth i think she's, she's playing venus i think so too in the yes, first indeed. round exactly. so you'll definitely be able to see it on tv exactly (laughs) (laughs) and you know they're gonna have a lot of narratives and storylines about that but uh well yeah yes you know she's credited the williams sisters exactly so it should you know it should be very compelling but she's definitely somebody to keep her eye on and we've we've talked about her before as a honorary shout out for badass woman of the week because she's phenomenal so i saw that and i was excited but also i've just been it's just like soccer 100 percent around here (laughs) (laughs) Shireen, wrap it up. Yeah, there's the Men's World Cup of Cricket happening, and apologies to flamethrowers that are really into cricket beyond my uncle sitting there and swearing in multiple languages as Pakistan plays. I really haven't been, (laughs) you know, watching any of it. I'm sure it's great and energizing and emotional and frustrating for everybody, as Chris Cricket always is. But the women are playing football, so, you know, take a back seat, boys. So as much as we've loved the Women's World Cup, there has been some troubling, there have been some troubling sorts of themes for us. And one thing we wanted to delve into with a lot of care and gravity is the issue of colonialism and race in this Women's World Cup. Amira, do you want to get the conversation started? 
Certainly. So we've been talking about this in bits and pieces over the last few weeks as we've done our preview show and as we've just kind of kept updated with the cup uh, as it's gone on. But we really thought it was important to bring these kind of pieces together and have the conversation itself. So I've talked in the past about the way commentators seemingly use ideas about pace and power when they're talking about African teams in particular. Uh, We've talked about the idea that cards are, you know, the, the matches are refereed a bit different. What looks physical when a black player does it looks different. Brenda last week had a terrific burn where she talked about the way in which, you know, hailing, say, France for its diverse team or as the last African team standing actually obfuscates the way that teams from the global south are not represented in, in the quarterfinals or the semis. And, and uh, indeed we're here facing uh, quarterfinals and of course then the semis that were just European dominated as well as the United States. And I think the last part of that too is um, even as say me and, and Jermaine jest on Twitter about diaspora power and we look for like the the two or three black women on each squad um, and I jokingly <laughs> made like all diaspora squad pulling the five women from the US pairing with you know basically you know half of France's roster and then like the two or three women from <laughs> the Netherlands and uh, Switzerland, et cetera, to make an all-diaspora squad, uh, we wanted to have a very real conversation about what it means to search for representation in this way and how identifying women of color and people of color on these teams also can help us lose sight of the fact that colonization is is setting the entire terms for this discussion. So the Black women participating on teams in France, right, come from colonial spaces. They come from Martinique, like Renard. And, you know, if you read her very powerful essay in the Players' Tribune, where she talks about football at the end of the world, she talks about growing up on Martinique and trying to make it to France. And, you know, Martinique is a is an overseas department, which is the fancy way of saying a colony. It's the same way Bermuda is the overseas department of, of um, Britain, right? And so what does colonization look like now and how it's influenced the development of the game and how it's influenced the women who play the game and find themselves moving from the colonies to the metropole or just existing in, you know, places around the globe, like Janogi, who plays for Sweden, whose dad's from Mali. What does it look like to, to trace the diaspora like this, but trace it with a very real explicit conversation about how it was in many ways shaped by empire and by colonization and often by blood. Um, so that that is the terms of the discussion that we kind of wanted to have. Um, and so, Brent, I actually want to uh, toss it back to you so that we can further unpack the eloquent burn that you made last week. So here we are again with a semifinals that's European dominated and France, you know, just made their exit. So, but certainly people are still looking for diaspora power wherever they can get it. Can we expand upon that conversation a little bit more? What does it mean yet again for the global South to, to be on the periphery of, of the finals and the semis? bums me out. It makes me so upset. 
I mean, you just hate to see it come down to money, right? You hate to see it come down to power. And it's something that I predicted that we all predicted would happen that we'd find, you know, the lineups looking like this. I do think it's upsetting. And I I think it's important, obviously, diversity, but I think it's very important to understand the difference between diversity in terms of this happens in the US. Like, for example, if you want to make a minority hire, frequently, people fill those spots with with internationals who happen to be white right? Which doesn't sort of further diversify in the way that it's intended to. So these things work in a lot of interesting ways, the international versus homegrown diversity and what that means in terms of colonialism. And I just, I go back to it where if the federations are going to tout the diversity of their teams based upon, you know, the diasporic history, give them all passports, Give them all, you know what it is, (laughs) give every post-colonial place passports then. Like if you're going to claim it as this real thing that you really care about and has a real connection with the metropole, you know, before you do stuff like that, then you have to kind of like come to some terms with what your past is. The bloody, bloody, terrible, violent history of colonialism cannot just skip ahead to like, yay, yay, they play football for us now. Right. And I just, I just find it so jarring. Especially because their FIFA's like thing for this World Cup is living diversity. And so I don't know if you've seen these like really rather cringy videos, especially when Germany was playing Sweden. (laughs) It makes me laugh. I'm sorry. It makes me laugh. So there's a video that they put out right before kickoff of Germany and Sweden where they, you know, have two representatives from the team. And both in in Swedish and in in German, they're saying these words about how we respect, you know, everybody on the pitch. We're not for discrimination. You know, all the all the language we're used to. <laughs> and then it's like we are living diversity, and it's like well, with Sasek off the German team, it's completely white. And on the Swedish side, you have Janogi, whose dad's from Mali, and then that's it. And so it just feels. It just, it's just a very strange feeling, but it, it, it's interesting, you know, France, I think is really interesting. And I study this historically in terms of the way that France uses sports in their kind of post-colonial moment. And so one of the things you see over the course of the 1950s and 60s, when you have a massive upheaval of independent African nation states, Latin America, people getting independence in the Caribbean, right? This is a time in which independent countries are popping up. It's also in the middle of the Cold War and both the United States and the Soviet Union are glancing at places in Latin America and continental Africa and the Caribbean to try to exert their power to try to get these newly formed countries to kind of go their way. And you also have former colonies trying to figure out what their relationship is going to be with these colonial spaces. And France is really interesting because they decide they're going to try to be friends and they're going to foster a relationship, particularly through athletics where they host friendship games and they have these joint matches in West Africa, in the West Africa and Senegal. And they're going to foster these kind of pipelines from Martinique and reunion to France. So uh, Shireen, I would love if you would talk a little bit about your relationship to the French team, but like also how you see diversity and colonization playing out on that team in particular. 
Thanks, Samira. I mean, this is something that like particular to football that I've carried and studied and you know, thought about, particularly with regards to France, because the whole idea that diversity and what does it mean? Like when we talk about post-colonial stuff, we're talking about racialized diversity. And, you know, looking at that Germany-Sweden match where, oh, this is a testament to diversity. What happens is people conflate racialized diversity with other types of diversity in terms of gender or in terms of sexual orientation. And what ends up happening is that you get massive heaps of white feminism coming in here where those two things gender or sexual orientation will overtake the idea of racialized diversity. I mean, how often have we seen that issues of women, quote unquote, overtake and speak over issues of racialized women? And it happens to me, and I know it happens to Amira, and it happens in spaces it's happened on this podcast previously. So I think that it's really important to keep that in mind. Like when we are talking about diversity, it's become sort of this word that is it's open-ended. And for me, being a racialized woman, it means something completely different than it would to somebody else. So in terms of France and in terms of when we look at what football is historically, when we look at, you know, Jessica and I, were, when we were in Paris, we went to the Institut du Monde Arabe and they had this beautiful, beautiful exhibit on football in the Arab world. Now, yes, I had issues with the fact that there was very little and I was griping the whole time. Um, but then I saw Zizou video, so it was like, <laughs> okay. But the idea of that football has, in fact, particularly in relation to France, been a way to resist, to disrupt. You look at Afalan in, in Algeria and had Rashad Mehloufi left in the 60s. He left the French national team overnight to go play with Algeria. And the letters are actually there in the exhibit. And it's fascinating. We don't see this level of discussion in women's football. We don't talk about the issues of racialized or diasporic issues because we're still so hell-bent on, oh, well, they're women. Let's even get attention for the women's game. So we're not even at a point yet to talk about that in France. And this is something, this is why there's very little discussion of hijab on the pitch in France, even though France is hosting the Women's World Cup, and this is going to forever be the bane of my existence. Now, when we talk about diversity, et cetera, we talk, in, and Amira has this beautiful setup for a diasporic, you know, 11 that she's she's done, Saragama, Italy, like we talk, we can talk about, you know, Ellen Bernstein of, of the Netherlands and Shanice van de Sanden, we can, but that's, that's it. So it's almost like having these two figures here say, oh, we've got our diversity. It, it doesn't actually work like that. And when the USA becomes one of the rosters, with more women that are from racialized communities, then it becomes an issue for me because like USA cannot be the bar. Yeah. I mean, I think that's saying a lot at this point. Jess? Oh, I'm just listening. Have, this is one of yeah. my favorite things is like when you guys are going, I'm just, I get caught off guard. Um, Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. You wrote this great piece this week on France. So oh, I didn't did, want to forget yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And you know, that that piece was interesting because it was originally I was going to try to write something about the diversity of the French team. And it's actually difficult <laughs> to talk about because France, the, the French have such a different way that they talk about race. They actually, I was told they use the word ethnicity instead of race and that there's, you know, the way that colonialism comes into that conversation. But it was too hard to do because they just don't talk about the women's team in general. It was one of those things where it's there's not enough of a conversation about the women's team that they don't even have a real conversation around issues of diversity and certainly not one of colonialism with the team. But I mean, I did want to say 
I don't have much to add. That was all so good and brilliant. But, you know, when I was there, and Shereen and Brenda can both attest to this, it, it was something to go to these matches and watch. I, I'm sure that this comes across on the TV, but like I really just felt it in person. Um, and Amira brought this up at the very beginning that it did feel it's it's interesting. I don't know. I don't have the right language, I feel. When you're watching these almost all white teams play against teams predominantly of color, um, if not completely of color, I kept saying like someone needs to write about the difference in the roughing and between the two teams and how they do penalties and and how but in a real smart way, uh, in a way that like takes into account that the teams with less resources play differently a lot of the time and that they often are frustrated and they're working against things that like they end up coming out in in what penalties are given, right? And what that must be like to be down on the pitch and to experience that. And I'll say when I went to the Netherlands versus Cameroon, it's just so there was, and I'm sorry, I, I should have looked her name up. Number seven for Cameroon, she ended up scoring the only goal and she was one of their superstars. Nishuta um, Jara? Is that who you're talking about? Nishuta Jara. Yeah, I think so. There was a whole thing. I didn't really see it. Maybe people saw it on television. She pushed, like a Dutch player tried to give her water at some point and she like flipped the water bottle up into the air out of the woman's hand. This was early in the match. And then the Dutch fans, and there were so many of them because we were in Valenciennes. We we're only 100 miles away from the Netherlands. They're also just famously incredibly supportive of their women's team. They booed her so hard for the rest of the match. And then they would cheer when she would go down, which that was the that was the one that really got me, like that they wanted her to be injured almost. And you just felt it in the stadium. Like it was such a white crowd cheering on a very predominantly white team against an all black team. And it felt so uncomfortable. And when we can talk forever about what happened with England and Cameroon, and I just kept thinking like the last time that those women were in that stadium, that was what they experienced. And I'm not like here to defend the behavior that she had with the water bottle or whatever, but it was so excessive. And it was, it made me feel bad. Like I don't, I don't have, again, good language for it. But just thinking about how all those things are working themselves out, like on the pitch. I'm sorry, I'm rambling at this point. But I just kept thinking about what it must be like to play in that dynamic. And it sounds it, it just felt really bad at that game. I think one of the things that, just to touch on what Jess is saying here about wanting someone to write about it intelligently, I really don't know. Maybe definitely someone from Burn It All Down. But I think the idea that, you know, the fairness, we, we take for granted privilege on the pitch is very important. Like, racialized privilege on the pitch is a real thing. I've played soccer for over 30 years. I know this. I've felt it. I've been discriminated against the first time I was racially abused was on the pitch and the call did not go in my favor. Let's just put it that way. But the idea that, you know, people don't recognize that is very problematic to me. We've seen journalists say, well, my assessment and analysis of, you know, England versus Cameron wasn't based on race, but they're all white people saying this, which is the bane of my existence. And something that Amira burned last week is a coded word. It's not even coded, the, the, the language used. So this idea is, 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 it's very rich and it's very important, but I really don't know a lot of spaces where it could exist. And one quick thing, because I know we have to wrap up, was just... The idea that Nadeshko, Japan, being the only racialized team left, and the pressure on them to have to like to account for the diversity piece 
of the puzzle. Um, they can't just be footballers from a nation that loves football. They would have accounted for that. And therein is another conversation about, in addition to being footballers, in addition to wanting to win the World Cup, you're also having to represent an ethnicity, a community, a culture on the world stage so football can make itself feel better and say, look how diverse we are when we know that's not the case. Certainly. And just to wrap up, I think what's really important when we talk about this is also not to lose sight of settler colonialism. And so also when Mm -hmm. we're looking at these teams, particularly from Canada, the United States, Australia, is to understand the absence of Indigenous people on the team as another indictment of a different form, but just as insidious form of colonization and rendering those groups invisible is continuing the work of settler colonization in a way that I think we also, it would be very interesting to pair that in a longer, bigger, of course, more in-depth conversation that we're always striving to have. It never seems like there's enough time to truly unpack all of this, but I hope that that was a, a space where we could at least start getting some of these things out there together and in a little bit more depth. Next, I sat down with Professor Jennifer Doyle from the English department at UC Riverside, who's written extensively on sport at thesportspectacle.com and talked with us about her work on VAR. This week, I have the honor of sitting down with Professor Jennifer Doyle, who we are big fans of at Burn It All Down. She has written loads of books, including Campus Sex, Campus Security, Hold It Against Me, Difficulty and Emotion in Contemporary Art, and Sex Objects Art and the Dialectics of Desire. But for sports fans and critical sports fans, you may know her best from her original blog, From a Left Wing. And right now she's writing at thesportspectacle.com, which is a brilliant blog. And I suggest if you don't follow her, she's at From a Left Wing on Twitter, and her commentary is amazing. Jennifer Doyle, welcome to Burn It All Down. Thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. We are so excited. So this week, I could ask you a million things about the Women's World Cup, millions, and I want to ask them all. But this week, you wrote a really brilliant piece called The Voices in Her Head about VAR, VAR, and the use of it in the Women's World Cup. Can I just start by asking you, you know, what made you, what was the impetus for writing this piece? Well, like a lot of people, I've been struck by how much Um, at least up to this point in the tournament, VAR has interfered with our pleasure, right? As spectators, the game feels interrupted with these long, weird breaks where when you're in the stadium, you have no idea what's going on. Even if you're watching on television, it's just like a total interruption of the flow of the game. And then it's had this very powerful effect, I think, of undermining players and the um, spectators' confidence in the refereeing, which I think is the opposite effect of what was intended. So, you know, I mean, I was just, these were just impressions of mine. And so I wanted to learn more like about how VAR works, where women figure in it, because someone had, I saw, you know, I saw on Twitter, on Twitter, on Twitter, a, a reference to the gender of the video assistant referees at the list of 15 video assistant referees initially 
published by FIFA when they were announcing the referee team for the tournament was all men. And that blew my mind because FIFA actually has a really regressive policy of gender segregating the referees in the tournament. So men, referee, men, women, referee, women, with the exception of VAR's video assistant referees. And so I just wanted to learn a little bit more about that. And so that's a starting place for writing the article. And it's been, I mean, on social media, on the commentary among the players, it's been one of the huge stories of the tournament. On Burn It All Down, we had a debate where I sort of defended VAR. I mean, to the extent I could, not the fact that they use the tournament as a guinea pig um, for doing it. But I had originally thought, and I'm not confident about this argument, so I want to ask you. I had originally thought it would be an opportunity for teams that were less prominent in the game to get some of the calls that may have been swayed against them. Yeah. And it seems to have had the opposite effect. Yeah. 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 So, you know, let me just say one of the things, there's a few things that VAR, when you start digging into how it works, that are very have particular significance for the women's game, right? So, you know, one is that the men who are working as video assistant referees as far as I can tell, and I would love to be wrong about this, they don't have a history of working at this level in the women's game, precisely because FIFA's gender segregation practice and refereeing prohibits that, right? They would have no experience refereeing in women's tournaments, and likewise, women would have no experience refereeing in men's tournaments that are governed within FIFA. But of course, many of the women who are working as referees within the World Cup actually have experience working in men's leagues right in their um, home countries, like in France or in England, for example. There are definitely uh, women working the tournament, right, who work for the Premiership or Liga 1 here. So, uh, you know, I find myself wondering, does this make a difference, right? Because one of the things, this is just about optics, right? I have, again, no idea. This is totally like a kind of a literary critic speculating on what, you know, on the dynamics that are unfolding. But and the sense of these men, you know, reviewing in essence all the decisions that women are making on this on the field, and these women working right the match with these voices in their heads, right, and with this, with these voices actually coming from this VAR room, being all male, kind of actually presenting themselves as a kind of patriarchal authority to whom they in essence check, right, you know, like there's a sense that you know it was that handball like the right you know the right call was that ball out of line. Of course, it's not actually the on-field referees who are initiating that questioning. It's more that the VAR referees are coming in on the decision-making process. And so anyway, I just was kind of curious about the gender dynamics of that and the impact that that might be having on the game. And I thought that I was maybe taking things a little too far, but then there was this 90-minute debriefing, which is a tournament. Every World Cup, there's a refereeing debrief, and it's held at about this stage. And so you get this sent, you know, this picture from the referees where they... Colina, who's the, the chair of the FIFA's committee for refereeing, he was giving an overview of like the controversies and how they think about it and how VAR was working. And it was like, the message from him was, it's, it's all good and fine. But actually, since that press conference, there has not been one single use of VAR, which leads me to think actually that something was really going very wrong. I mean, it's been so notable since, you know, we've gotten into the knockout stages, right? I mean, the U.S., there was a handball that the referee waved off, which certainly looks, I think, for a lot of people, certainly in France, right, there's a sense that that was actually an unfair decision. And on the one hand, I want to say the referee made the right call. But I think without a doubt, I feel very confident that had this match been played a week ago, 
uh, that they would have had a VAR review of it. And likely the referee's decision would have been overturned because we have and other. We're you know, talking about the ball that came off of O'Hara's arm. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I think the referee made that right decision, but I think the referees were also making reasonable decisions that were not by any standard clear and obvious errors, right? Which is supposed to be the standard by which VAR overturns these decisions. You know, so I don't, something clearly was changed. I think they really did feel, I, I do think there was some, at some moment there had to have been a reckoning with the impact that this was having on the outcome of the match, but then also on the sense of fairness within the game. Well, I mean, you saw FIFA sort of turn around about the goalkeeping fouls, right? So could you tell listeners a little bit about that? Well, um, so there have been these a series of adjustments that were made in, in essence, the rules of the game issued by IFAB, which is uh, a, you know, a, a panel of administrators right, who set the rules for the game every year. And there was this sense, in essence, that goalkeepers were you know, encroaching right, on those who were taking penalty kicks. And so they came up with this kind of, it's not, it's not that they created a new rule. It's just that they're introduced the use of VAR in order to make sure that referees were enforcing a rule, you know, which was that the goalkeepers were actually not leaving their line until the ball was kicked. And they had made that rule a little bit more, I think, articulated, right, by, in, you know, making, um, as the requirement is that the goalkeeper has to have one foot still on their line when the ball is kicked. I'm, you know, the rule itself actually sounds kind of reasonable to me. I'm, you know, I actually don't have much of a problem with that. It's just the way that VAR is sort of being used in that context. I guess, you know, and even I'll say, even from my perspective, I don't have that big of an issue with VAR being used in this particular context. Although what I do find confusing was, I think that was a decision that sent Nigeria out, right? Where Renard, who I love, right, was um, taking a penalty and she hit the crossbar, but that penalty was retaken because VAR, the video assistant referee, just found that the Nigerian keeper had left her line early. And so they allowed Renard to take the penalty again. And of course, that, sent, that, that was uh, basically you know, finished off Nigeria. So I don't think it's making things more clear. I think, if anything, it's actually doing the opposite. Right. I mean, it seems to me without any kind of like previous experience with this, it's it's really ended up stacking the chips against players who have less professional opportunities or perhaps haven't been ever even introduced to it before. I, I could take this in another direction, too, which is, you know, uh, this is a kind of a black helicopter narrative, I'm going to say. Right. But it's <laughs> not me watching watching this and also watching the FIFA debrief about how VAR works that if I was going to try to fix a match, I would go after the video assistant referee room because you, know, the, you can take, I mean, anyone who followed, you know, the OJ Simpson trial, for example, you know, or I'm sorry, Americans, well, especially those of us who say, for example, work in American studies and media studies and think critically about photography and video you know, we know all too well uh, the degree to which photographic evidence can, in essence, be decontextualized and made to signify in almost any direction, right? So the lesson for us in this is the, the trial of the police officers who beat Rodney King, you know, whereby photographs of Rodney King on the ground being kicked and beaten, you know, become evidence of how threatening he was. I mean, that's a really powerful lesson sort of embedded in that story. And it seems kind of strange to invoke that in relationship to soccer. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, and it, I admit it is to a certain degree, but, you know, as somebody who teaches visual studies classes, I found myself thinking about some of the decisions and the calls that were being described in that press debriefing 
really evidence, actually, the degree to which the sense of what is clear and obvious becomes very political, very contingent, very subjective, the closer you look at uh, photographic evidence. So for example, Kalina uh, was reviewing the buildup in the attack on goal before the handball that was called against a Japanese defender. And the ball had actually looked like it had gone out actually before they even you know, struck um, at the goal. And you know, he went over this and he was showing these photographs of the ball being, you know, in essence, kind of like brought down the line and um, on the attacking right. And it seemed to go over the line. It seemed to be out, you know, but then he had this whole long explanation for why it wasn't out. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> um, and, and he had, he couldn't show this on the video screen. He was showing it on his phone. And then he was basically like, you have to take my word for it. You know, and if that ball, if the video assistant referee had said, well, this ball had actually gone out before they even attacked the goal, the handball wouldn't have been relevant. Right. So, you know, the whole thing was meant from his part to show how great VAR is. But I came away from that saying, you know, <laughs> feeling like it's totally random who decides to pay how much attention to what moment of the game, right, where there's a call that feels somewhat marginal. Oh, yeah. I will never, I will never understand how there wasn't the offsides in Australia, Brazil, when that ball was intended for Sam Kurt, who is in no way not a forward. Yeah, um, no, that's, there's so many moments. There's so many moments and you just, so I'm not sure what the future will be, but I mean, I, I love your sort of focus and analysis in that piece on, on the optics of it. And I just wanted to switch for a little bit because I have you and you're in France and it's so exciting. It is um, Pride Month. And I wanted to ask you how you felt about the optics of Rapino over the last week and her very public sparring with the president of the U.S. Yeah, well, to put that in perspective, that's partly, you know, drawn from statements that she's made over time, right? So this, these are not new declarations. This is not some startling turn in Rapino's politics. <laughs> right. Uh, this is you know, she's been uh, absolutely consistent for as long as any of us have been following her. Mm-hmm. And Gwendolyn Oxenham's article about her brother's struggles with addiction, his history of incarceration, their closeness will shed some light to, you know, on you know her position, right, as a very strong critic of the prison industrial complex with somebody who has really direct awareness of, of its toxicity, right? So, you know, that this is not new, but of course, with all the media attention on this game, right, and with her prominence as a player on the team, and then also with the team's confidence in her, you know, she's sort of basically in a position where this has to be a part of her news story. So I've been loving it. And to be honest, it's put me at sixes and sevens because to be, I was actually kind of rooting for France. (laughs) (laughs) I think that happened to so many of us that it was like, I found myself rooting for the U.S. women's team, which is not common in me. Yeah. I mean, it's not that I don't support the U.S. women's national team. It's just that I know how much was riding on this for France or women players here. I spend my, uh, I'm lucky enough to spend my summers outside of Montpellier, which has a a history uh, prior to Lyon's um, dominance as a home for women's football in the country. The, uh, The Montpellier club was really the side that was leading the way. And, you know, so I, you know, and I know that with teams like this, this will be true for England, right, uh, playing the U.S., that there's a sense that a victory is going to mean so much, not just for the team, but for the entire sport in, in their country. And of so many, so many sides, you know, playing the U.S. and playing European teams are actually facing that kind of pressure, 
know. And anyway, I also love the way France plays. They play a very smart, technical, interesting game, incredible defenders. I've always got my eye on defense. Wendy Renard is one of my favorite players. But Rapinos, I mean, her, her public presence, her skill as a player, her persona, it's just hard not to love her. And I was just really, I was thrilled by the way they played. I couldn't have been happier about the fact that she scored the two goals. I love that in the, you know, debrief of the, the pre-match press conference, you know, Rapino represented the U.S. players, you know, as she should, right? And, the, you know, the U.S. national team has shown absolute confidence, right, in her ability to represent the whole team. And I think that says a lot, actually, about where the team is at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found, I, felt, I found myself, like, encouraged about the future of our country. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, the tournament's obviously working. The grasping at straws stage of like, (laughs) no, no, but what about the optics of her goal celebration? What about the visual of that? She has a really like unique sort of approach to that. Like with that second goal, first she sort of, you know, first she sort of does her, I I always call it like a gymnastics ta-da finish. Yeah. Like, yes. so like, she just sort of like, like has this like really like stationary pose that she does. Yeah. I assume she's facing the friends and family and fans. Like I'm assuming that she's actually opening her arms to the supporters yes. in that moment and also claiming a kind of leadership position in, in relationship to the team and like what in the team, when I say that word, I want to include the supporters in that. So it's a captain kind of pose, right? It's like she's, you know, you know, captain of her ship. It's super <laughs> embracing the, the whole wide world, right? So, you know, of course, that has a kind of a resonance, uh, you know, with the, I don't know, just like a, you know, there's a part of me that is just like, ah, you know, it's such a almost cringe inducing sort of American gesture of a certain sort of command over the world. But at the same time, I couldn't love it more coming from Megan Rapinoe. And also, in this context, you know, I think she's just declaring herself a winner. So, And did she scream, go gaze? Oh, in the match. I don't know. I, it's in the interview. The second she goal? Was, yeah. And I don't know. I'm hardly watching this in France. So I'm sort of seeing this kind of refracted through French media. Right. Um, you know, my understanding was that in, after the game, she was asked to comment you know, in essence, like as a gay player on the cusp of, uh, you know, uh, pride in Paris is, I think, the next day, right? Mm-hmm. And, right, we're at the, also at the 50th um, anniversary of Stonewall. Like, this is a massive moment. And she's also herself been in a, a very strong, she's kind of walked into and embraced uh, her role, uh, I'd say, representing gay, lesbian, trans, queer athletes, right? So, you know, I, and she, so she did make comments to the press. My favorite, my, my favorite one was so one where she said, there's never been a winning team that hasn't included gay players. And I'm not getting it word for word, but she, you know, she said basically that, and then punctuated with that's just science. (laughs) 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 You know, I don't, you know, I, pardon me, I'm pretty confident that like half the people reading that don't quite get what's the observation that's embedded in that, you know, which is that every team, Every team in the World Cup includes gay players. I mean, so <laughs> that's the statement that I'm hearing, right? And uh, if we could only get a male player to admit the the scientific evidence as well, yeah. if they could only feel so yeah. feel so 
charged and, and safe just, saying that. She's just reminds me, I think for a lot of us who are saying, you know, I'm a 50 something professor. She just reminds me of like our smartest, most awesome students, you know, the, the people whom, in whom we're, we're all too eager to just like, you know, invest, right, our faith in the future and that things are going to be okay. <laughs> it's too much to put on the shoulders of one athletic figure, but uh, I, she seems to be willing to carry that weight right now. Yeah, she seems absolutely capable of doing it, at least over the last week. Uh, just one last question then. I mean, looking at this tournament, like going going forward, just briefly, like what are the things you're going to keep your eyes on in terms of stories for the for the end of the tournament? I mean, there's a part of me that's like, you know, the political stories, the big picture, you know, already we're kind of grinding down to the usual suspects in the tournament. Um, and that's, you know, that happens certainly in the men's game, but in the women's game that has a terrible resonance, you know, insofar as, I mean, we just saw Italy leave today. And their story in the tournament was so huge. There's so much talent on that side. And you can see with just like a relatively short history of serious investment in the game, how much of a difference that's made. You know, you just get the more, the closer you follow the game, you see how little it actually takes really Uh, not to minimize like what it takes to bring people to that level, but just how little women have been given and so many different national setups and, you know, seeing teams leave the tournament, uh, you know that a big part of the reason why they're leaving the tournament when they're leaving the tournament is the lack of support from their federations. And it's just demoralizing as someone who's been following uh, women's soccer for a few years now to see that happen over and over again. Although I think we're getting closer Mm -hmm. and closer, obviously, with France, for example, being a a great example of that and also England. Right. So I'm keeping my eye open. I think right now my heart is with England, partly for just, again, having a sense of how the historical importance of their just even presence in the final would be, never mind winning the whole thing. And then, you know, as a play, you know, in terms of the play and the technical side of it, defense, 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 it's all about defense. Well, Jennifer and Doyle, I hope this isn't the last time you're on Burn It All Down, but thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you for having me on. We don't want to leave the Women's World Cup quite yet. (laughs) This episode, uh, and we thought we might discuss some of the big takeaways or stories thus far as we're we're done with many of the, the... stages and teams that we've loved. Shireen? First and foremost, I'm going to start with something that is a bit intense and I feel strongly about. I believe in the chicken dance. <laughs> no! I am not. I'm not. Good Lord. I, I know. Good no. Lord. What is Hear me happening? out here. Okay. All right. Okay. I know this is a bit of a hot take. However, Macarena, fine, it's cliche, it's a little tacky. But the chicken dance is so instrumental in our elementary learning. I literally could show my stuff in gym class because I had the best, I did the best fucking chicken dance this side of wherever. So I'm okay with it. And the fact that Etty is the, you know, mascot, you see the connection. I'm not saying I love the local organizing committee. I don't love the LOC, obviously, because they're a product of the FFF. And you know, how I feel about that. However, don't come after the chicken dance. Just don't do it. I, I, I just don't. And, and yes, the fact that after all these discussions on VAR and cl- post-colonialism, colonialism, and racism, and sexism, and misogyny. The fact that I have to think about the chicken dance, that's okay. I'm not going to apologize for my heightened <laughs> awareness of the chicken How do the chickens feel? 
I did not. I did not ask them. And I'm a bit worried of you, Brenda, (laughs) because you're a vegetarian. So I sort of, I'm just going to say that I'm also the, the ambiance, the best wave that I've ever been in. And I've been in an okay number of (laughs) events. Wasn't Parc de Prince. So I'm going to say the takeaways. I love that the fans can have a conversation. The wave there. They love the wave. And it was was an exceptional wave. It was, it did only three rounds, Jess. We did three rounds. And when it ends, they always boo. Like it could yeah. go for like 12 <laughs> minutes and they still boo at the end. It was amazing. But, uh, <laughs> what I want to talk about is player experience. I left, I'm the one mistake and I don't regret anything, but I did not buy a hat when I was at Parc des Princes because I really wanted like a, a casquette, um, uh, a, a baseball hat. And I really wanted one. And then I was like, I don't want to wait in line. I'd rather get food, you know, choose between food and a hat. I'm going to go with food. But but yeah, but then they sold out. So I asked, I, I texted Steph and said, could you get me a hat? And she can't find one anywhere. So let's talk about player experience. Yeah, she, they're sold out. And this is her take on this. And Steph's WhatsApp messages are as brilliant as her writing. Um, we're literally like, oh, FIFA, did you underestimate the amount of people that would care? Yes. So I think that the, the, the player experience is something that I'm really happy to see. I am not as irritated with the Dutch brass bands as I thought I would be because at the end of the day, go west. Do you really hate it? No. So, I mean, like the player experience there, I'm happy for those people that are loving this World Cup because I think the supporters, we deserve it. The players deserve that love and they're tweeting about support from their countries, which is something I haven't seen before. So that's one of my takeaways. I know it's a little bit random, but that's okay. (laughs) A little bit, Jess. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, on the pitch, right? Uh, The dominance of Europe and what that says. And as Brenda will say, the inevitability of that. Hopefully we keep talking about that because it really is, it is a bummer that that's sort of how it, how it has ended up. Um, I, I wanted to mention, um, you know, FIFA's on our, you know, what, what do we say? It's like an incinerator. Eternal, eternal, eternal incinerator. Yeah. But really, I don't know, man. Like when you go there and you actually experience it, you're like, yeah, they really don't care, do they? No. And <laughs> I think that's one of the things that I will forever take away from this this world cup for me and i know this is very personal for me uh, because i actually got to go but you do it just they don't seem to care and shereen and i have talked about how like in paris you could barely tell <laughs> that the world cup was happening when you got to the smaller cities uh they were much more invested in it for lots of reasons but like shereen and i had to rent a car which this is probably local organizing committee not doing their job but like we had to rent a car to get to ron's for the usa versus thailand game because they just didn't have enough trains like lots of people were struggling because they just there weren't enough trains to like, get around um as if they again hadn't planned for it and, you know, there's been a lot of discussion and people can look these up, but that the stadiums are not very full, right? That there are incredible numbers when it comes to people watching around the world on television. The people want to consume this and take this in and they love this sport and they love watching it. Like the numbers are wild this year. They're humongous. So, like France is pulling down something or they were, they were pulling down like 10 million viewers in France. There's only 66 million people in France. (laughs) Um, Like, and, you know, Brenda could talk about like what was going on in Brazil and like just the numbers in all these places are are gigantic. They can't get people to go to the games like that. You just it feels like a total failure on on the tickets are so cheap. And the tickets are so cheap, which I know they're going to use. I've said this repeatedly. They're going to use that against them in the end by saying they didn't earn enough money or bring in enough money. But 
it's just such like you see it right and they lied like fifa said they had sold um i'm not gonna get the numbers right um a million tickets and then they've had to walk that back uh, because it turns out that didn't actually do that that they were over they, they were overstating it and people are like well maybe that's why people weren't trying to get tickets because you told us all that they couldn't get them it's just been a real like that's definitely for me um how much FIFA doesn't really seem to care at all about this tournament. And it's really obvious when you're there. Amir, what about you? Yeah, it's been really interesting. So I obviously didn't go to France, but I've been watching. Um, so last year during the Men's World Cup, I got into a routine because of the timing. I would drop my kids off at camp and I go to this one bar in Bethesda and I watch the matches there um, because they got an ordinance to allow day drinking to show the World Cup. <laughs> and so this year... That's spectacular. Right. This year they still have that on the book. So uh, you can do it. And early on, there was a lot less people. But going down the stretch, I've noticed more and more people coming in for the games, all of the games, not just when the United States was playing. But I've also have had so much like overdoses of men just being shocked at how compelling the game is in women's football is which is nothing <laughs> new but it's just like genuinely like every time i'm watching a game they're like wow this is really exciting or oh or, like this one guy who swore he would never be into it like literally five minutes later it was like oh so close and i was like <laughs> oh yeah you look really unmoved by this at all and so it's been really interesting just to think stateside how it's being received and you know going into a store my kids wanted jerseys and Brenda has talked a lot about this and we've seen her duct tape at work but you know I've noticed that like say in Target they have a section to cheer the United States the jerseys they have they have Alex Morgan and they have Mia Hamm which is not the right it's okay we're like going back to the 90s Toy Stories in theater Godzilla's in theater like it's we've just returned to the 90s child's play but it's it's Interesting to me, again, because it goes, it connects back to what Jess was saying, is like the severe underestimation of the love people have for the women's game, of the people who will tune in, of the capacity you need for little things. Like, when do you open your bar so that people can watch the game? Yeah. Do you want to put the fucking sound on? Yes. Thank you. Like, there, there's so many bartenders <laughs> who are like, do you want to, um, should we turn the sound on? And I'm like, yes, turn it on. Like, what the hell? Well, not if it's Alexi Lalas, but Oh my yes, God, yeah. <laughs> Just during the match. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think that that's, you know, been something that's really interesting to watch that's been simultaneously frustrating. And also, it's it has been a really compelling World Cup, in my opinion. And then also, I'm really gutted for France in the Olympics, and I can't yes, shake it. Like, please, it's yes. really pissing me off. And that I just don't like UEFA. And that Will you just explain that real quick? Because I was confused sure. until like a day ago. <laughs> Sure. So for Olympic qualifying, UEFA doesn't hold a separate qualification. So they base it on the top three finishers of the World Cup. And because, as we've mentioned, there's been 
European teams dominating in the quarters and the semis. Um, with France's loss to the United States on Friday, it knocked them out not only of World Cup contention, but also of qualifying for Tokyo by virtue of England advancing and then the other two teams being um, the Netherlands and uh, Sweden. And so those will be the European representatives in Tokyo next year. And it it's just frustrating because the team is so good and they're such a joy to watch. And I felt like, you know, it was completely the luck of the bracket. Yeah. Um, I felt like that, that quarter should have been the final. And the fact that they won't be able to get back on the pitch and defend it on a global stage next year feels so criminal to me. That's very, very common, though. I don't think there's any confederation that has a tournament that's separate to qualify for the Olympics. Well, kind of have this. CONCACAF does. Because Common Ball does it, and Africa doesn't either. The, you, you, the way you qualify is one tournament qualifies you for the World Cup, Pan American Games, and the Olympics. Yeah, that's a, yeah that sucks too. It sucks, <laughs> um, yeah, but CONCACAF doesn't do that. Right, but I'm just saying, I'm pointing out that it's just well, not it's stupid all, that all the weird. way around. It's The point is that I don't like it. I know, I know, I know. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I can. I, I don't know if I can talk about France. I don't. I just keep tweeting photos of Louise in the sea, but I can't even. I, know. I can't even talk about it yet. I know. I know. I'm sorry. We're so, we're sad about France. Everyone's sad about France. Even the even even those that didn't want France to win should be sad about France. I guess one thing we haven't talked about that I want to put on the table as something to think through is the importance of hosting. And 2023, so the Women's World Cup um, has never been in Latin America or in Africa. So I really hope that FIFA thinks really hard about that for 2023. It's pretty frustrating that they're like nine months behind making a decision on that. It's it's real, real frustrating. I mean, think of how long we've known that the Men's Cup was going to be in 2026. Yeah, so they get over a decade. Yeah, and <laughs> when you look at those Netherlands fans, the Dutch fans, you think of 2017 Euros and how yeah. important that tournament was for them. Yeah, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, I just have to put it out there in advance that if it goes to Europe or <laughs> the, the US or even, obviously it's not going to go to Canada because I was just there. <laughs> I, think, I think I'll lose my shit. Like, I think I will just, I, I'll just fall apart. I mean, Brazil spent billions of dollars on the 2018 World Cup. Why wouldn't you use those stadiums again? They're doing nothing but collecting pollution. Yeah, like, like they're bus terminals now. Yeah. You know, and so I will just, I don't know. I just... Send thoughts and prayers my way. When are we supposed to find out? I think now FIFA's pushing it back until February. Jeez. Okay. Which is so late. That's so Which is so late. Terrible. Okay, anyway, okay. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want to end on a terrible note because we really burn it all down is loving this Women's World Cup. And now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show, the burn pile, where we throw all the things that we've hated in sport for the week on a proverbial giant incinerating trash bin garbage pile on fire. (laughs) Put that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Amira, you want to start us off? (laughs) Sure. 
I want to burn white people doing the absolute fucking most. <laughs> As we all have been watching, Megan Rapino has been tremendous, I think, in how she's handled the fact that the documentary company that she interviewed with like months ago decided right before the quarterfinals to release a clip of her saying she's not going to the fucking White House. Um, I thought she handled it really well. I love her politics. I love her solidarity. I think that she's really intentional about it. What I don't love is random white journalists who were barely able to muster support for Kaepernick all of a sudden literally penning these these op-eds calling her, and I quote, the Muhammad Ali of our generation. Ah! Like, just, you're doing the most. You're doing the most. Like, Megan Uh. Rapinoe is tremendous, and she's also Megan fucking Rapinoe. Like, let her be her. And that's the only, I feel like it's the only kind of callback to Black activism that you have in the 60s, and you go back to it. But we also, that's a character of who Ali was. You don't have a full scale of how much he sacrificed, like, his entire livelihood. We didn't embrace him until he started shaking and he was nullified as a symbol, you know, of whatever colorblindness that we wanted to adapt in the 90s, like in multiculturalism, like, it's just offensive, and you're doing the most along those lines. This week, in Chicago, the Chicago White Sox put up in between a Miller Lite ad and birthdays in the ballpark, the famous Chicagoans, famous people from Chicago, and right there next to Orson Welles and Pat Sajak was Emmett Till. Like, Again, you're doing the fucking most. It's like somebody Googled famous people from Chicago and Wikipedia and put up Emmett Till's picture. Like the victim of white supremacist murder, like is not a famous person just put up in the ballpark and spare me the, oh, well, anybody can learn history. Like, again, there are black fans in the ballpark who didn't need that trauma on that day. You're doing the fucking most. Just like everybody needs to chill out a little bit. That would really make me happy. Until then, I'm burning it down. Burn. Could we burn that, like, more than once? (laughs) Burn. 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 Jessica. God, I hate going after Amira. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean that in the nicest way possible. Uh, okay, so I know that Alexi Lawless is the lowest hanging fruit, but he's so unavoidable in the U.S. during the Women's World Cup. So here we are. Oh. So in the lead up to the France-USA quarterfinal, Lawless picked France to win, which like, okay, credit to you, Alexi. We'll give you that one. When pressed on it by Fox Sports colleagues and asked what he'd do if he's wrong about the outcome, he said that if he that if the U.S. won the game, he'd put on a wedding dress and pose under the Eiffel Tower, right? So the implication being that like, that would be his punishment for getting it wrong. And now it's become a thing because as we all know, and we've talked about France did lose that match. And so even people like U.S. women's national team midfielder Ali Long has asked if she can take the picture because ha ha ha. So look, this is just lazy, sexist, and transphobic humor. Men in dresses, ha ha. I know we've talked about this before on the podcast because if I recall correctly, professional baseball teams used to do this all the time as hazing because what could be more humiliating truly than a cis man wearing a dress? Just Stop doing this. The joke is old. 
It's worn out, and it's a product of a misogynistic culture that tells women there's nothing more beautiful than when they wear a dress, and at the same time, denigrates the wearing of dresses as something to be avoided and laughed at. This is one of those moments where you should stop and ask yourself, why exactly is this funny? I literally tweeted that to Lexi Lawless. And for fuck's sake, don't bring this shit into the Women's World Cup. (laughs) My goodness. There are plenty of reasons why Lawless shouldn't be a part of this broadcast. Brenda threw on, metaphorically, the burn pile just a couple of episodes ago. But this feels like a quintessential example of his worthlessness to covering this competition. And the truth of all of it is he humiliates himself plenty by just going on television (laughs) and having opinions. And like, that should be enough. Leave the dresses alone. Leave the women alone. Burn. 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 My burn is quick and searing, unlike last week's singe or a couple of weeks ago. I want to burn the pee chant. Being back in the Gold Cup during Pride Month, no less. The pee chant, for those that don't know, is like the F word for homophobic slur in English, but it's in Spanish. And it came up again during the Costa Rica-Mexico game. And the Mexican fans just did it every time to the keeper. And I know it's not a new one. It's not like a complicated one. But it's so hateful. It's so awful. There's never been a Mexican player who's ever come out. Male player, I should say. And to do that, like, in Pride Month is just particularly even terrible and painful. Anyway, I just want to I just want to burn that stupid chant that gets defended as part of tradition even though it's really new. So like learn your history, that's a new chant, that's nothing that's been going on in Mexico since time immemorial. And yeah, I just want to burn it. Burn. 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 Train. Okay, so as everybody knows, men are playing football somewhere. And one of those places is the Africa Cup of Nations. So what I'm going to burn is somebody who I previously supported. I prayed for their health. I went on rampages about Sergio Ramos because he injured him in the Champions League final in 2018. I'm talking about Liverpool and Egypt's Mohamed Salah. Now, Mo Salah, as we know, is, well, actually, I did not know. He's represented... His agent is a fellow by the name, I'm just giving you some context here, by the name of Rami Abbas Issa. Now, this will become important later in the in, in my burn. So there is a player on Egypt's squad named Amar Warda. Now, Amar Warda plays in Greece, and he, you know, the, the team, the Egypt did quite well. He was suspended from the team for allegations of sexual harassment. He apparently was reaching out to a model, and she publicly shared his very misogynist and I would classify as violent messages when she rebuffed him. So the Egyptian Football Federation, to their credit, said, we're suspending him. He shouldn't have a place on the team. So what ended up happening is, Senior players of the team, including Mohamed Salah, publicly spoke about, quote-unquote, second chances. So Mohamed Salah's tweet was, women should be respected, no means no. But we should, but there's always a but, we should always have an opportunity for second chances, not just send men to the guillotine. The guillotine. 
He invoked the guillotine because you know what happens. Men that are accused of sexual harassment, there's a huge history of them actually being sent to the guillotine. No, Mo, no, that actually does not happen ever. So there was a lot of discussion on Egyptian Twitter, um, Arab football Twitter, and then Twitter generally about his tweet that he didn't actually write it. But when you have someone like Rami Abbas Issa, who is also, and I found out from a Twitter thread, a Donald Trump supporting pro-men's right, alt-right misogynist who openly hates political correctness, quote unquote, socialism, and in his words, liberal snowflake weakness. So this is from a Twitter thread that I retweeted by Lewis all day, the, the Twitter account, and I didn't know this. How can you claim ignorance when you're represented by somebody who share these views? What ended up happening is Egypt reinstated Amar Warda to the team. They reinstated him just two days ago. And because of the outcry from the senior players. But this is the point. So the credit that I previously gave Egypt, I'm taking it back. I want to burn this because I'm livid. And I will. I tweeted this and I stand by it. I prayed for his health and his success. But wallahu lazim, I will cancel Muhammad Salah in a heartbeat. Because this type of complicit rape culture behavior, the impunity that men face and him supporting this is fiery, fiery bullshit, inflaming garbage, and I want to burn it. Burn. 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 After all that burning, it's time to celebrate some wonderful accomplishments of women in our Badass Woman of the Week segment. Honorable mentions go to those participating in the Beach Volleyball World Championships, which are taking place right now in Hamburg. Right now, Laura Ludwig, returning champion from Germany, is coming back after the birth of her son, and good luck to her particularly. Julie Hurricane Hawkins became the oldest person to run and win the 100-meter dash at the National Senior Games for the women's 100-plus age division at um, the ripe old age of 103. So, wow. Holy <laughs> Just holy shit about that. <laughs> okay. Nishia Lian of Luxembourg won a, t- a table tennis bronze medal at the European Games at 55 years old. Former WNBA superstar Kara Lawson has been hired by Boston Celtics as an assistant coach. Uh, I knew we'd be hearing from Amira on that one. In more Dutch football glory, the Ajax women's team will be the first Netherlands to have their own collective labor agreement. The agreement will include guaranteed minimum wage requirements, leave, insurance, and other benefits. Also honorable mention to all the women in the Junior World Gymnastics Championships in Hungary. And bon courage to the equal playing field team, the two-time world record holders who were attempting another record with the longest and biggest match in history with women from over 65 countries ages five and up. The hashtag any girl anywhere is where you can follow their efforts. And can I get a drum roll? <laughs> Badass woman of the week, Megan Rapino. And along with her all in the LGBTQ community in sport, she, of course, scored two goals against France 
And when she was told that the, the same sort of weekend, last weekend, was Pride Day in France, she laughed and said, quote, go gays. You can't win a championship without gays on your team. It's never been done before, ever. That's science right there. <laughs> End of quote. <laughs> Badass. Okay, what's good in everybody's world? Amira. I want to send a happy, happy, happy birthday shout out to uh, one of my bestest friends, my play cousin, Leilani. Lani and I have been friends since literally I was 21 days old and she was born. There's pictures from our first month up until now. We have been friends for 31 years as of Saturday. And she is my oldest and closest, and I absolutely adore her. And so she is always my something good. But I wanted to send a special happy birthday shout out from Burn It All Down. Happy birthday, Jessica. Yeah, Wimbledon starts tomorrow. <laughs> I know I wasn't aware <laughs> of it five days ago, but I am truly very excited. Uh, this is, of course, this this was a tournament that got me into watching tennis twenty plus years ago, whenever that was. So I'm always excited to watch Wimbledon again. And then I just wanted to give a shout out to my husband, Aaron. Yesterday, he ran a marathon outside of Portland, Oregon, uh, down Mount Hood. Apparently, it was a downhill marathon, uh, which for anyone who doesn't know, that's 26.2 miles. It's just maybe his 30th marathon that he's run in his life. Um, he runs them oh a God. lot. Uh, and he was nervous going into this one. He wouldn't really talk to me about his goals, you know, so I didn't know what to expect as far as how well he would do. And then the other wild thing about this is because of the road they were running on, they had to start very early. He started running at 5 a.m. Pacific time, which means he was like up at 2 a.m. to go run a marathon. I don't know. It's it's all wild to me. But he ran it in three hours, 13 minutes and 36 seconds, which was so good and so much faster than I actually had anticipated based on what he said. And I'm just really proud of him. It's really remarkable that he is able to do this and to do it so well. And I just it was just very fun. I'm, I'm very proud of him. Yay. Shereen. Happy Canada Day on Monday to the land with a brutal colonial history that still seeks to control the bodies of Indigenous women by forcing them into non-choice of reproduction. Also to mistreating them and the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls entire portfolio. But other than that, let's get ourselves some maple leaf donuts, have some Tim Hortons, protect the CBC and recognize our privilege with universal health care and with music in some way. I, I always associate Canada Day with music. Anyways, let's first begin by recognizing that we're settlers and making amends, if even possible, to our Indigenous you know, forefathers and mothers. I'm writing for SB Nation, and I got to write a really beautiful piece that I loved about friendship on the pitch stemming from Japan's loss to the Netherlands. And it's something, sometimes I write things and they make me cry. And I, this is one of those things. And I really appreciated that platform. Tim Hortons has a Beyond Sausage patty. It's a like plant-based thing. Okay. And it's damn good. And for people, <laughs> people like myself, people like myself that eat halal meat, it's a plant-based option. So it's not meat, but it tastes like meat. And I know some people are like, no, it shouldn't taste like meat. But anyway, I'm here for this breakfast sausage. 
sandwich, which will make my road trips with my children far easier. And that's what I'm talking about. And my cough is almost gone. I'm very excited about oil of oregano because it's really helped me. And we've got some exciting things possibly coming down the wire that I cannot share yet. So, and I'm very happy, happy and grateful for burn it all down. Mysterious. I'm excited for 4th of July silly festivals that I love that try to recreate the 18th century. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to get my nerd on and go see some fireworks. And those are like two of my favorite like combination, like things to combine history, nerdiness and fire. Um, (laughs) And I like like this is so terrible. I like spending the whole time like picking apart about what's all like not realistic in every single celebration like right. a horrible human being right or like a really good historian right but like i you know like i'm there like so what's the point you know <laughs> i mean they're just a bunch of good-hearted history buffs but i still have so much fun being like well you know actually <laughs> oh no Brian, it's okay. are you excited about I- the I keep it to myself. I keep it to myself. It's in my own head. So don't worry. I'm not going to offend anyone. Are you excited about the fact that the United States is playing England on July 2nd, which is the actual day of the Declaration of Independence? I know. We've already called it the next revolution. And the thing is, is, of course, and the thing is that where we live is right next to Claremont Historical Site, which is where it was drafted. Right. And so they read it, and I was like, <laughs> I, I'm like so deep into this, like whole politics of it. And my kids like Hamilton still, like that's just gonna be permanent. So yeah, right. I'm I'm totally totally happy and into into all that and all the puns that will come and all the bad history jokes. So that's it for this week, and burn it all down. Although we're done for now, you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise, which has just been expanded. So go check it out at teespring.com backslash stores backslash burn hyphen it hyphen all hyphen down. You'll have fun (laughs) typing that. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. And you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com, where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show. I'm Brenda Elsie. On behalf of Amira Rose Davis, Jessica Luther, and Shereen Ahmed, keep burning on, but not out. And I'll suck you